a lot of a lot of good stuff in the last couple chapters of Second Samuel. And in this book where we've watched David come to power as a king of Israel around 1000 BC, the second king after Saul had perished in battle and at the hand of the Lord. And we've seen David go from being that young man in First Samuel to being king of Judah for seven years and the unified kingdom of Israel and Judah for 33 years. So he was a king for 40 years. He will pass away in First Kings. When we get to First Kings right around the corner, we'll see him really in his elderly just final chapter of life. But here in Second Samuel, we're getting his life kind of wrapped up. Like it's, it's wrapping up and that's the way the book ends here. And so we've seen all the things from his life. The, the, the highlights of like taking out Goliath and not throwing the spear back at uh, King Saul when he attacked him that way and just so many good things. But we've seen the lowlights too, the difficult things of his life. The sin with Bathsheba, uh, Uriah, We've seen the heartache that his children caused him, the things that happened with his children as a chastening from the Lord. We've seen, even in chapter 24 after this, where he takes the census, and that was not a good thing. We see him having sin in the latter part of his life with pride. But tonight, as we come to chapter 23, we get this interesting phrase, and we get these six, seven verses here. I want to, we'll read, we'll read these first few verses of chapter 23 and focus on just a couple of them, but I want to give the context because it's one complete thought, and I'd like to do that. So we read in chapter 23 of 2 Samuel, now these are the last words of David. Thus says David, the son of Jesse, thus says the man raised up on high, the anointed of God, the God of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist. The spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me, he who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God, and he shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, like the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. Although my house is not so with God, yet he's made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire, will he not make it increase? But the sons of rebellion shall be as thorns thrust away, because they cannot be taken with hands. But the man who touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they shall be utterly burned with fire in their place. Well, in Psalm 1, David drew some comparisons to the godly man or the godly woman, and the wicked are not so. And as you look at David's life, there, of course, is a contrast of people of faith people seeking to do the right things versus people of unbelief and not doing the right things. We've seen that in First and Second Samuel. Even with those who profess to serve the Lord like King Saul did before him, he could talk about the Lord but didn't really have the walk to back up his talk. So this is his last words. So, so not, like, not like his deathbed last words, but sort of like his retirement party kind of last words, like this is what I've got to say and this I want to share with all of you. And so he gives us these five verses that are really uh, edifying and encouraging about just God's work upon his life. They're very positive. It's, it's nice that at this point in his life when he's reflecting, he has a positive framing of how he saw his life with the Lord, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And then those last couple of verses, just the reality that he lived his life in the midst of an evil time, which all human beings do. And I take comfort in that because I don't really like verses six and seven. 
I don't like him in his generation. I don't like him in mine. And I don't suppose you do either. But the reality is what really matters is who we are in the the previous verses of 1 through 5 that he shared. And specifically, I want to talk about verses 1 and 2 in this final statement where he said, these are the last words of David. That just has to get our attention. Again, like, these are the last words. Now, we have the last words of Moses. We have the pretty much the last words of Jesus. We have with the Great Commission. We have the last words of Joshua. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. You, you get this. We have the last words of Jacob in the book of Genesis. And when you see the last words of, of a godly man or a godly woman, they, 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 they want our attention. Because yet again, we're reminded, and the Bible reminds us that eternity is always right around the corner, and they remind us that we will have our last words. So for younger people, you're probably not from, that familiar with having your last words or hearing someone share their last words, but with older people here, you'd be familiar with last words. Maybe you heard your parents' last words before they, while they're still cognizant, before they maybe faded under medication because they're in great pain. You maybe heard their last words or maybe it's a slow fade where they maybe is dementia and stuff like that. So the last words are kind of scrambled. They're not quite as, um, you know, they just don't, you, 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 you can frame it very positive with the good, but it's, it's not the same. And you have to believe here, David is still very sharp and cognizant in his thought process for his last words. And again, he lived to be 70. And so that gets our attention. So these are his last words. This man who had a heart after God. And we're told that's a major feature of his life, right? Like we really admire David because we're told he had the heart after God. And we know that God loved him and chose him to be king because he had a heart after God. So we saw that at the beginning of his journey when Samuel came to his house and anointed him as a teenager. And here he is at the end of his journey where he's speaking these things, looking back. When you graduate high school, you might look back. When you graduate college, you might look back. When you've had a career at a job for a long time and you're retiring, you might look back. Or if you're moving on and you chose to move on, you might look back. I went to Greg McEwen's retirement party with the fire department a couple of years ago. It was quite an extravagant event and it was really neat to see. And it was the completion, though, of what he had been as a, like a fire chief and all these different things. It was super impressive. They had the bagpipes and all that kind of stuff. And it was in, reflected on his career as a fireman for 25 years. So I want to draw on those things for our life because ultimately we're going to look back on our life. Ultimately, it's not going to be retiring from the fire department. It's not going to be graduating from college or high school or being recognized for these achievements or moving onward and upward in the business field or packing up your box from your cubicle and going on to semi-retirement at leisure world, ultimately, there are final words that our hearts could speak when we've come to the end of our journey in a general sense. Not, this isn't deathbed. This is more like, you know, well, it's like me when I travel on an international flight. I'm notorious for arriving like four or five hours early. If I'm flying out of Heathrow, I like to be there like five, six hours early. I just like to see everybody. The whole world goes through Heathrow, right? And so it, to me, it's, it's all a process. And I'll sit there, and Heathrow has the old, th- the old things like you see in the movies where the cities are changed, like Istanbul, uh, Cairo, and, and they're rotating and changing. So as planes take off, they're, up th- they're upgrading, and they're going up the charts with the departure time. And if you're four or five hours early, your flight's not on there yet, or maybe it's way down here on the right side. But as you're sitting there in the terminal, and Day goes on, you get lunch, and then you get the coffee shop. You're starting to move up, and they tell you what part of the terminal to go to. That's what this is like. He's not on his flight yet, but he's at the airport, and his flight's coming up. 
Now, when we get older, we can sense like, okay, our time is coming up. Pastor Chuck teaching on David's end in 1 Kings chapters 1 through 4. I listened to it this week. He talked about David being very elderly and somewhat invalid. And we all see different endings. So we don't know, like, if, if we make it to the 90s, if we're super cognizant, where we can still be like this at 90, or maybe we're like this at 65, and we step into eternity at 67, like a couple of good friends of mine have in the last year. Whatever the case is, we're all going, and somewhere is our flight, and it's just moving up, and then it moves over to the left side, and just sooner or later, it's like, whether you want to go or not, that's your flight, and you're headed for the, the gate, and you're going through the security, British-style, UK style, and that's just the way it is. So with that in mind, in all the different seasons that we have, because this is the final flight, right? Like, this is like, you're the king of Judah, now you're the king of Israel. It's not that kind of flight. Like, this is like, you're going to be with the king. And that's the context. So I've been thinking about this for all of us, as we even have a couple of people, saints from this church, step into eternity this year, where I was very intimately involved in those final moments of their life, final seasons of their life. So it's strong in my heart. We also had a couple people that we thought might go to eternity that somehow, by God's mercy, he spared them. They didn't. That says David, the son of Jesse. This is a commonality for all of us. This isn't really a point, but this is important to come to the church and thinking about the body of Christ and followers of Christ. The son of Jesse. We, this is, the commonality of the human experience is we all have a family. We all come into a family. Someone birthed us, even if we're raised in an orphanage or foster care or whatever. We had people that raised us. We have an upbringing. We have a time when we came into the world, like Paul said to the Athenians, that God predetermined our times and seasons, our ethnicities, our gender, and all that stuff. We come into the world, and we have no choice in that. We have our timelines. So David's the son of Jesse. He, he had no choice in being the last son, the eighth son of the house of Jesse. His, his brothers looked like they would be great kings. His first three brothers, dad thought they'd be great kings. But in the end, it was... David, doing the lowly chores, it was one who was anointed by Samuel when he had come to his house that time, at that time, to anoint him to be king. You can't help it if you're a middle child. You can't help it if you're the firstborn or the only child or the baby of the family or just one of ten kids like the Sweeten kids who I mentioned a service ago. Just ten kids like, wow, they just keep coming like a baseball team. You know, they just, and, they, and they all play baseball, so it's perfect, right? But the distinction for us is not who we are in Adam or in Eve. In other words, we're born once, right? The Bible tells us we're, we're born once and it's appointed to men to die once. So we come to the world with no choice. You know, my dad's from Madison, Wisconsin. My mom's from Cleveland, Ohio. My, my dad's liberal Protestant. My dad's devout, my mom's devout Catholic. And they're Midwest, have a lot in common, both military family backgrounds and stuff. And there we go. And I'm the middle child in the 60s. But the distinction for me and for all of you with your family upbringing is not so much that you're David, your name, the son of so-and-so, but it's what comes after that. Because in Adam all sin and die, but in the second Adam all are made alive. And if anyone be in Christ a new creation, old things have passed away, all things are new. And Jesus said, unless we're born again, we cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And we're not going back into our mother's womb to be born again. We're being born of the Spirit. And David, for the Old Testament, had a lot of the Holy Spirit in his life. Now, for the New Testament believer, we receive Christ. We're born of the Spirit. Spirit's in us. Spirit's with us. We'll get to that in a moment. But in the Old Testament, the Spirit would come upon people, but not everybody. Not everybody. But David is just so much of David is the Holy Spirit this, the Holy Spirit that. When he has a 
Psalm 51, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Peter preached in the day of Pentecost and he spoke, the Lord spoke by his spirit to his prophet David that, you know, I'll not keep thy, thy, thy body in the grave in, the, in Sheol. So the key with David is the key for all of us tonight. The man raised up on high. He had, he had faith. He had the shadow of things to come for the church, which is the faith we have in Jesus Christ. He had faith. And most of you here tonight, I know, so I know that you have a confession of faith in Jesus like me. We're told in that universal gospel, John, as many as received him, he gave them the right to become the children of God, not born of flesh, not born of blood, like by Phil Brand from, and Diane Ottman, like my family. I was born that way, but born of God by the Holy Spirit when I really responded to the gospel in spring of 87 with the verse, it is finished on the cross. That's how I knew I saved that verse. Suddenly I saw it all and it all made sense. I believed before that, but it wasn't really, the spirit came at that time. So presuming we've had that flashpoint with the spirit, the moment we're born again, the moment, the moment we give our life to Christ, we pass from that earthly family, David, the son of Jesse, to the heavenly family, to the church, he says this progressive order really is what our life is meant to be like in the church age for followers of Christ. And at the end of his life, he's speaking these things. And these are the things I want to be speaking at the end of my life. These are the things you want to be speaking at the end of your life. So again, the context is this is his life. You older people remember, there used to be the TV show, This Is Your Life. And they'd honor someone famous and they'd bring out their kindergarten teacher, their junior high baseball coach, and, you know, the professor that helped them get their degree for this. Like, they would do that. That's, that was a famous TV show back in the day, for those you're like 16 above. The man God raised on high. The, the moment we give our life to Christ, see, with David, you go, oh, it's so special. He's the king, the man after God's own heart. But the beauty of Christ dying on the cross, rising from the grave, ascending to the right hand of the Father, and sending the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost is what worked for David works even more so for every one of us who call on the Lord Jesus Christ. For Peter himself said, as many call upon the Lord shall be saved. So all the things that David had in this profound level with the Lord is a shadow. So he's looking back at his life. It's a shadow of what we can have with Christ in the fullness of the one chance we get with life. So we're all born into a family, David, the son of Jesse, but thus says the man raised up on high. And the person that God raises up is the person that God has brought down first because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And as Charles Spurgeon, this is my only Charles Spurgeon quote, I use it about once every two years. He said this about the kingdom of God. We all come to a low ceiling. That everyone comes, that the equality of the gospel is that we all bow the knee and we all humble ourselves to be saved. And to watch people get saved is interesting because you can be a prideful man for years and years or a prideful woman, but when the Spirit's really working, you see it just like it's like it's like you're breaking down, breaking down, and all of a sudden like you bow the knee. And suddenly, like people who say praise the Lord, they don't bother you. You're actually like, yeah, praise the Lord. People raising their hands at a harvest crusade three years ago. You're like, oh, look at these people. Oh, I hope they live in a different neighborhood. And then three years later, you're like, yes. Who's this guy, Phil Wickham? Like, that's when you've been humbled. See, the man who God raised up for great things and the woman God raised up for great things must first be humbled. And after we're humbled to even be saved in the first place, to come through the low ceiling and the narrow gate, we must maintain that. Because we see throughout the Bible, and 
church history and our own lives will teach us, when we become prideful, that will take away the anointing. That will take away the power of the Lord in our life. It is much better to be a struggling, broken, humble person with the Lord, trying to figure things out, feeling clueless, than to be someone who's full of themselves, filled with pride, and has it all figured out in God's name. That latter one is, well, Jesus told the prayer, right? In the Gospel of Luke, he said, he told the story where the one person goes, oh, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner, and he's beating his chest like, I'm the biggest loser. I'm the tax collector. God, have mercy on me. And the other person walks like, oh, Lord, I thank you. I'm not like this loser over here. And I do this, and I tithe, and I do all that. And Jesus said, that one went away talking to himself. The first one went away justified. That's from the gospel of Luke with Jesus. So when we think about being raised up, we want to be raised up. And humility and brokenness precede being raised up. And we, re- we prepare ourselves to be raised up. We ready ourselves by seeking humility. I shared with Sam Pretty much every month when I set my goals for a month, I'll write down, like, what's the word for August or July? And for August, it became real. To me, I just thought, well, humility, holiness, and healing, you know, because I've had the physical infirmities. Those are three words. So I look at my goals every day, like, Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm praying I'll be humble. I'm, I'm praying I'll be holy, and I'm, I'm praying I'll be healed, you know, and I'm, I'm believing you for these things, and I'm trusting you for these things. And where there is humility, holiness will follow, and there can be healing. Not always, but in some cases. So just because we're sick doesn't mean we're not humble. But you can be sick because you're not humble. That's why when you're sick, you're like, well, Lord, which is it? Because either way, you're like, hey, let's get this right, because this is no fun. So let's get this right. Unfortunately, some people always associate sickness with sin, and that's not true at all whatsoever. The greatest prophet of the Old Testament, Elisha, could raise people from the dead. And then, you know how the last verse about Elisha in the Bible is? He got sick and he died. So I want to believe God for your good health. I want to believe God for my good health. But more importantly, I want to believe, look at the man in the mirror for humility. And I want to believe God for holiness in my life. And we can that agree, say what? Yes and amen. For sure. So we want to be raised up. We want God to do profound things in our life. I think it's reasonable to ask of the Lord to raise us up more in 2022, part three, the third quarter, the third period of the year, we're coming up on it, than the first couple thirds of the year. I would want to be raised up more in 2023 when I set my goals for this year at the church. I, I set very ambitious goals for how we grow spiritually, how we grow physically, uh, numerically, how we grow financially, and we are doing really well in um, a few of those categories for sure. And I've also told myself, Believe in God for what he can do. See, I've said this many times in the last few years. We want to believe God for great things, and if he chooses to do them or not, that's his choice because he's God of the universe, but I don't want to small-mind God. Are you with me on that one? Like, I don't want to small-mind God because without faith, it's impossible to please God. So I want to wake up as a woman of faith, a man of faith, with great expectations and to attempt great things for God and expect great things from God, and whatever he chooses to do, that's his business. I once planned an outreach. We thought we had 800 people there. We, had, we rented 800 chairs. And like not even 60 people came. And the 60 people were all people from the church with badges that said, I'm here to serve you. And they're all looking at me like, what happened? I'm like, I didn't want to know, but I want to crawl in a hole. And I remember going home that night saying, Lord, I outbigged you on this one. And the Lord, like, the Lord let me kind of have my little thing there. But eventually he just showed me that 
It was a great thing. It was a great work. It's what he wanted to do. I believed him. I went to all these high schools with Daryl Green from the Redskins, DJ Dozier from Penn State, national champion running back, NFL. Went to all these schools. We did this event. We had good DJs. Nobody came. But I did believe people would come. And it took me years to kind of think that one through. And one time I was talking to Bob Coy, and he talked about planning a big outreach in Florida early on when he went to Fort Lauderdale, and he rented the theater, he had the, and nobody came. So we have to ask ourselves, if nobody comes, does that mean the Lord's not in it? He hasn't raised you up? He's not doing this work? Or does it just mean like he's just doing something, you and him? I asked Bob Coy, what'd you do? And he goes, I just did it like Jesus was there. I was like, oh, I did it like I went on strike. <laughs> you know, like I just want to go home and cry. <laughs> But that's the way it goes. So we, the vision on a new year, the vision on the, third, the final third of this year is, is to be raised up and see greater things. I want to see greater things. I want God to raise me up. We're not in retraction. We keep talking about this the last few years. We're not in retraction. We're in expansion. And we're not in expansion in competition with the world expanding or whatever the world's doing. We're in expansion because Christ is at the right hand of the Father, and he hasn't come back yet. We're citizens of heaven. We're ambassadors of Christ, and there's work to be done. That's why we're saying raise us up like David. David, the son of Jesse, the man God raised up. So I want you to put tonight, if you're in Jesus, I want to put your name in that text. And you can take the first one and say, you so-and-so, the daughter of so-and-so, or the son of so-and-so. But really put the, the real, this first point is raised up. But put yourself where, that says the person raised up on high. Let God raise us up. Let God raise us up and empower us. And if he's going to raise us up, there's going to be humility, there's going to be brokenness, and there's going to be faithfulness in the little things. Because if we're faithful in the little things, that's when he can raise us up for things that are uh, to be entrusted more. Let God raise us up. We also see, this is all in verse uh, 1, we also see, so it's David is who he is. He's a son of a man. Son of, you know, man or woman, son of Jesse, but raised up on high by the Lord. So we want God to raise us up. That's, that's the new man. That's the new woman in Christ because the, the earthly man is not raised up that way. And they're just raised up like, and if they're not born again, what are they raised up for? It's all temporal. So we want to be raised up for eternity. So the man and the woman raised up by the Lord. And then the anointed of the God of Jacob. Wow, what a title. The anointed of the God of Jacob. Like the God of Jacob is the God of the universe. There is no, there's no God but our God and our God is a rock. And everything in his universe in a trillion galaxies that we can see in the micro world that we can't see centers around Jesus Christ. He's the author and finisher of our faith. He's everything. Everything's made by Christ and for Christ. So the anointing, the anointed of God is a human being, a man or woman born again of the Lord who has an anointing of the Lord upon their life like David. It's like Samuel pouring the anointing oil on David as a teenager. That's a clear anointing. It's like Aaron in the Old Testament before that, the priest, when he was anointed to be the high priest. Same type of thing. For us, we know the New Testament talks about us that we have an anointing from the Lord. Jesus said the Holy Spirit would come to the church. He'd be our helper, our paracletos. He's by our side. He comes into us. He leads and guides us in all truth. Confirms the word of God as being the word of God. Makes it living and powerful. He's made us alive. We pass from death to life. And we have an anointing. We have an anointing and the ability to read God's word and understand it properly. It's alive. It's not just ink on paper. We hear it and it pierces our bone, soul, marrow, and spirit. We read it. It does the same thing. Or as Paul said to Thessalonians, 
It works effectively in us who believe. That's what it does. So we have the anointing of the Spirit. We have the anointing of the Word. But we really have the anointing for our life. That we're empowered. Which really brings us to the Holy Spirit. Now, my point is not to do a full study on the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our life. But I will say, with the Holy Spirit, we're told to be filled with the Spirit in the New Testament. And the idea of being Spirit-filled is that we're overflowing because Jesus talked about the Spirit overflowing from our lives. So if someone says to me, oh, that's a Spirit-filled woman, that's a Spirit-filled man, I just picture the Spirit of God just overflowing from their lives like torrents of living water, which is what Jesus said as he described the Spirit. But then when I put other passages of the New Testament with that, I think, well, we're told that there's the mind of the Spirit. So in how I work, I, I see like a brain <laughs> in my mind. I see like the mind of the Spirit is a perfect mind. Now, my mind is imperfect. It's corrupted. It was born in corruption. Every cell in my body has an element of corruption in it because I'm a son of Adam, and it's being transformed from glory to glory just like you. So even the most brilliant mind that can do brilliant things without Christ, it's corrupted. So when we have the mind of Christ, we begin to think like Christ. We begin to see like Christ. What's really the, the heart of the gospel, the four gospels, is Jesus showing these guys how, he, how to live their lives as his disciples. As, I, as you see me do here tonight, I've given you an example that you would do the same when he washed their feet. So the mind of Christ is the... The Holy Spirit, the mind of Christ and the mind of the Spirit are one and the same. It's the Spirit guiding us to discern truth and falsehood, right and wrong, the right road, the wrong road, and really that the book of Proverbs, that knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. The mind of Christ, the mind of the Spirit, is the ability to see something and understand the right course of action in it supernaturally. That's why in the gifts of the Spirit, we're told there's a gift of wisdom and there's a gift of knowledge. So I'm coming to that just now. But the first thing we, we think of being Spirit-filled, overflowing like a torrent of living water. But then you say, well, we're told that we have the mind of the Spirit, so that's like to think like Jesus. That's to transform. Not to be conformed to this world, be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Romans 12, 1 and 2. But then we're told we have the fruit of the Spirit, right? Galatians Five talks about being the fruit of the Spirit. So the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, kindness, gentleness, meekness. Those words can be interpreted a little bit different depending if it's like a New King James or an NIV or Living Translation. But the words have their basic concept of ideas, particularly the first three and the last one, self-control. But the idea is that like there's fruit. I remember years ago, Pastor Brian Broderson said something that really resonated to me that a fruit tree doesn't produce fruit for itself. It produces fruit for other people to come and get the fruit. So a spirit-filled woman, a spirit-filled man with the mind of the spirit, their life is going to produce love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and meekness. And it's not for them to enjoy. It's for others to enjoy from our life. So that's an anointing we want, right? And the way things have been and are just in the human experience, confessing Christ, we want to, we want to produce these kind of fruits. So in my mind... I, I, see, I see a brain in my mind for the, the mind of the Spirit, but I see a fruit basket for this one. I see like a really nice fruit basket. I'm like, oh, the Lord wants me to have this brain, not this one, <laughs> which is a good upgrade, of course. And this fruit from my life. But the fruit of the Spirit, of course, is contrasted with the works of the flesh, which is, we don't even need to go there. 
it's all bad. It's everything sons of Adam and daughters of Eve are without the Lord. So the anointing is to take us from wrath and envy and jealousy and strife and malice and all these things to love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, meekness. That's a, in my daily goals, I got something else going on right now that I'm looking at every day on my phone. Gentleness, kindness, meekness. Just boom, 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 those three words. <laughs> Can't hurt, right? Just once a day in the morning, remind myself of my Bible study. Okay, what's my vision? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Gentleness, kindness, meekness. Let's just let's slow it down. Because I, I rev up as the day goes on, right? Jory Brand, my RPMs start running a little high. And I've been on a low RPM for a couple months now, and it's like, whoa. Kindness, gentleness, meekness. If you're 60, you probably got 20 years, and it'd be much better to finish it with kindness, gentleness, meekness than harshness, wrath, and pride, right? Like our anger. Like, and if you're younger, more, better for you, more fruit. We want the fruit of the Holy Spirit coming from our life. We want people to come to us and go, oh my goodness, this woman, like, look at this fruit. This is amazing coming from our life. Jesus overflowing with the Lord. Then we have the gifts of the Spirit. So there in Corinthians, we have all these spiritual gifts. So the fruit's sort of for the world. The, the fruit's for everybody. The mind is for you to think like the Lord. The fruit is for everyone in the world to enjoy. The gifts are for service in the church. So you can build up one another as iron sharpens iron, and we can use the gifts. And we have this anointing and this empowerment. So we've, we've been humbled, and we were raised up, and we were spirit-filled. And, and you have these gifts to build up one another, and you have the gift of teaching or the, the uh, prophetic word, or you just the different gifts that you get, like wisdom or, or, or faith and healing. So I just see like a bunch of Christmas presents. Like God's got a bunch of gifts and, I, and, I, and we should want to get them. Like I want to come to church and I want the gifts he's given me to benefit you. Like when it's Operation Christmas Child, they're all bringing all this stuff, packing up shoe boxes. Like here, here's the gifts. Use the gifts that the Holy Spirit's given you. You're empowered. Use the gifts. Let's shine for the Lord. Let's do this. And then... The Bible talks about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is to be the witness for the Lord, like to really like be a witness for the gospel. So the fruit is the fruit, like that's Jesus in you. The gifts are for the body of Christ, building up the body of Christ. But when the Bible talks about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it's, it's associated with witnessing for Christ in life and word in the book of Acts. And with John the Baptist, it's associated with fire and with Pentecost, they had tongues of fire above them. So for me, I just pictured the fire. I've got a four square with the Holy Spirit. I've got a four square. And, and it's, it's like a square cut in force. So it's mind of, mind of the Spirit, fruit of the Spirit, gifts of the Spirit, baptism of the Spirit. And if you get confused, just see the well overflowing and get all of it. But empowered not by my wit or my strength or the wisdom of men or the education of men devoid of God or the power of men, for it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Mm. That's what he says in the Old Testament. And Paul, quoting Jeremiah, said, Let us not boast in our wisdom or our strength, but let us boast in this. Let him or her who boasts, let him boast that they know the Lord. That's the empowerment because it goes back to the humility. So God raises up the humble. He empowers us. We want to be empowered. So as we're going forward the rest of this year, as we're finishing 2 Samuel, 
It's like we're on a road trip, and we're, we're this is a long rest stop. You know, it's a two-hour stop, right? This is not, it's not a quick one. You know, we're like sitting down, we're eating, we're doing all this stuff. It's not a quick little 20 minutes gas stop like Love's or something in East Arizona. Like, this, we're just we're sitting down. You know, like, we just drove a lot. We're just, we're, there's a major off-ramp. We might be staying here tonight. We finished 2 Samuel. These are the last words of David. It's worth thinking about. That at the end of our life, we can look at our children, our children's children, even our children's children's children, it's possible, and say, you know, the Lord empowered me to do all these things. His spirit was upon me, and I'm praying right now that his spirit will be upon you. Because he got me from 1961 to this day, and he's going to get you from 1990 to your day, and 20, 2018 to your day. And, and that's how we want to see it. We want to just see everything in this universe through the eyes of faith and through the eyes of the coming kingdom. So we want to be empowered. Jesus said to seek, knock, and ask for the Holy Spirit, and he'll give, it, he'll give him to us. And there are mysteries to the Holy Spirit sometimes that we, we were like, wow, I like the Holy Spirit. But listen, the mind, the fruit, the gifts, and the baptism, to be empowered, all of it. Like if you're an athlete, and you can be like strong, like I want to be strong. And they say, you can be fast. I want to be fast. I want to be really smart. Want, okay, a smart athlete. Well, you know the... Who are the superstars in sports? The ones that are smart, fast, and strong. So it doesn't make sense. You're like, hey, as long as we're lining up for gifts, can I get all of them? Do you think the Lord wants to give us more in the final third of 2022, or is he going to retract? He just wants to give us more. Now, I'd be like, again, using a sports analogy, hey, coach, you know, like, I want to I wanna know, know, I want to know, I want to play more. It's like, well, take the playbook home and learn some more plays. Like, we do our part, too. Like, like Jesus in the water pots of Canaan. Hey, you fill the water pots, they don't turn into wine. And what you get, you get. So if you fill the water pots, you'll get a full water pot. Hey, he told the prophet, the prophet told the king, strike the ground, it's your arrow of deliverance. He strikes it three times, what's he get? Three victories. What's he tell him afterwards? You should have struck it a lot more, he would have more victory. So there is that element of us seek knocking and asking and going for those things. Then he says in verse 2 as well, the sweet psalmist of Israel. I've been thinking about this one since I taught it Tuesday night. I've been really thinking about it. So David, in identifying, he doesn't identify himself as a king. In his final words, he's not saying, you know, the, the, the king, that king. He even says, my house is not so. So he really puts his whole being a king and his princes that became kings after him, like Solomon. He sort of puts that under like, well, we weren't so, but we're in an everlasting covenant. And God is good and will not make it increase. So being a king, he puts all under grace because he knows he failed as a king. He knows his sin led to this, led to that, led to this, led to that. He multiplied wives. He did this and that. Then Bathsheba and Uriah and Oz and then Amnon, Absalom and so on and so forth. So he doesn't appeal as a king, looking back on his life, when he gives himself one identity, think about this, on the day of the Lord, when he gives himself one identity to be remembered by or reflected on his life, that identity is the sweet psalmist of Israel, the man who wrote songs about the Lord. The man who sang about the Lord in the field after he defeated the lion. The man who sang about the Lord when he was running from his son Absalom in tears. And aren't you glad that the great strength of David's legacy in our life is not that he defeated Goliath or he didn't pick up Saul's spear, but the great legacy and impact of David's life 
apart from, of course, Jesus coming through the line of David via the Virgin Mary, the great legacy of David's life is the Psalms that he wrote. How many of you, in the darkest days of your life, when you open the Bible, you go to the Psalms? That's what we do. As a minister showing up so many times in the most arduous and grievous of situations, I don't show up and tell people about David defeating Goliath and cutting his head off or not even throwing the spear back at Saul. I get up and I say, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He leads me beside still waters and green pastures. And yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. That's what I get up and say graveside with a little casket. That's what Scott would say as a pastor. That's what Sam would say. That's what we would say to family and friends. We're not talking about David failing as a king with Bathsheba. We're talking about David. We're quoting David's Psalms and what he wrote in the human experience. And we praise the Lord for those Psalms because they have been a source of great comfort for us. It's the word of God. And God speaks his word through human emotion and human experience. God at various times spoke in various ways through the prophets and has now in these last days spoken to us through his son. But as he spoke in various times in various ways, he gave us the poetic books like Job and Proverbs, but the Psalms of David. All those first 41 Psalms, straight up they're all David's. There's a bunch more David ones, but they're just... And we sing these songs. There's lines from these Psalms that are in so many of the songs we sing, you don't even know you're singing a psalm. Now, if you're from the 80s and you're a Calvary Chapel background, you know you sing a lot of these songs as psalms because at Pastor Chuck's world, all those Maranatha and all those original stuff, when I first got saved in the 80s going to Calvary Chapel, I would be singing all these songs that I love, and then I'd be re- reading through the Bible the first time, and I'd read it. I was like, this is that song. This is the song that we sing with Phil. And this is not Phil Wickham, but a different Phil. Like, this is the song we sing. And, and, and like, this is, this is Eddie Hill. I thought this was Eddie Hill's song. This is David's song. And isn't that beautiful? That 3,000 years ago, when he went from being anointed as a teenager to taking a census as a proud king, that in that human experience, he wrote all these psalms that cover the, the, the width and breadth of the human experience. And they're there for us. He is the sweet psalmist of Israel. And I'm so grateful for that. And the thing that really has me thinking about this is that was his gift. Now, he was fearless. He was a warrior. I mean, the guy killed a bear, a lion, and Goliath, right? When he was older, though, he thought he was going to take out a giant, and he had to be saved by Abishai. We just saw that on Tuesday night. He's like, ah, take him down, and then the guy's going to kill him, and Abishai saves his life. There's a point where you can't defeat the giants anymore, but you can sing till your last breath in Jesus' name. In fact, Melissa Henning Camp before she stepped into eternity, about 10 minutes before she stepped into eternity, you know the story, her mom's singing to her, and she said, when I get to heaven, I'm going to walk with Jesus. When I get to heaven, I'm going to see his face. She was doing the hand signals, and I'm sitting there here, and she's singing to her daughter there, and she's eyes closed, coma, lost 40 pounds, her vital organs are shutting down, and bam, the eyes open up on that song, and she jumped out of the bed, over the rail, going to my left shoulder. She was singing praise music when Jesus came for her. The ones we sing with our kids down here and are singing with your kids right now down here. She was ready for the day of the Lord at 21. 
And she went with her mom leading her in praise song. And what a good way for her mom to commit her to eternity, by the way, too. If you're a mom giving up a 21-year-old daughter in the prime of her life four months after she's married to Jeremy Camp, isn't that the best way to go? Singing those same praise songs you sang to her when she was a little girl, and then she stepped into eternity with the king. That's a great source of comfort 20 years later, which is how long it's been. I'm sure of it. But he was the sweet psalmist of Israel, which leaves us with his final thought on this third point. Raised up and empowered and gifted. He was a great singer. He would have been a he would have been a, obviously he probably would have been a great songwriter and a great singer without the Lord. But he's a great songwriter and a great singer with the Lord. And for hundreds of years they followed his his lessons with the praise and worship in Israel. And to this day, on planet Earth right now, it's not an exaggeration to say hundreds, if not thousands, of men and women are learning songs right now to praise Jesus in different languages that are influenced by the Psalms of David or even contain the content and the words of the Psalms of David. It's just all those, it's the word. In fact, he said in verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord spoke by me and his word was on my tongue. And it was as the psalmist in the things that he did. So this is a key thought tonight. This is really what I've been thinking about for the end of our life. When we get to the end of our life, what really is the one identity? See, because people might say, oh, you were the king of Israel. You beat the giant. You did this. You beat a land of bear. You're a warrior. But in his own eyes, reflecting on his life, his identity was the sweet psalmist of Israel. Summarize your life in one sentence. Because the Lord, you were born in the house of Jesse like any human being. You had your parents and your family. But God raised you up because you were faithful and you were humble and you were that person that sought the Lord. And God empowered you by his spirit to defeat Goliath and do all these great things. And at the end of your life, you see yourself as the psalmist of Israel. So I ask myself and I ask us, what do we see ourselves? Who do we see ourselves as on the day of the Lord? I've been thinking about this. Which identity is really our identity? See, people will see an identity for us. When I step into eternity, there are people who are going to identify me as the pro surfer, the pipe master, the California kid, and all that stuff. And there are people who are going to come to my memorial. That's, that's how they see me. That's my identity as a surf champion in the Hall of Fame. There'll be people that see me as the pastor who went to Virginia and went for it. There'll be people that see me as associated with Jeremy Camp and Phil Wickham and Worship Generation. There's going to be different opinions of me when you think of me after I'm gone, as there'll be different opinions of you when they think of you when you're gone, because I've done enough memorials to know you get 200 people together, they all have a different perspective and opinion of the person they're eulogizing and remembering. But this is David's opinion, and that's what gets my attention as being distinct. It's as if you're writing, you're doing the slideshow for your memorial. And what do you want people to think that how you saw yourself And I must say, in 35 years of ministry, I have wrestled at times with being a pastor. Anyone that's a pastor knows what that's like. Half the time you're a pastor, you're trying to figure out how to not be a pastor. Because the devil just beats you up, beats you up, beats you up, and never lets up. You're playing big league ball every day of your life. Like I said last week, my grandfather fought in World War II, and I wear his dog tag sometimes from World War II, Guadalcanal and Iwo Jima. And I've never done a day of military, and I probably couldn't. But I have no shame in wearing my grandfather's dog tags from World War II because I fought the devil for 35 years in ways that some of you can't even imagine. I sat in a car with Victor Marks and have a demonic entity shake the entire car while we're in there together. Like, I've lived the book of Acts, and some of you have too. I'll wear my grandfather's dog tags. 
because I've been at war for 35 years with the principalities and the powers and the kingdom of darkness, as have you. I always tell people, you doubt Jesus is real? Give your life to him and see how real the devil is, and you'll know how real Jesus is. It's a battle. The battle for, I spent 14 months in Vermont to see how hard the devil will fight for one soul. Like Jesus going across uh, the Sea of Galilee to Gennesaret to have one crazy man get saved. They went through a storm that had fishermen fearing for their life for one soul. Actually, two when you combine the Gospels. Now, I can't speak for you, and we're all at different ages in our life. But I can speak for me. And at this point in my life, when I think how one sentence, I want to remember it for the pastor that was willing to go for it. Because we did go for it. We went for it at Vista with the drug and alcohol ministry. We went for it in Virginia Beach. We went for it in Vermont. We came back. We went for it wherever we could go for it. We went for it with Pastor Chuck, all those young people in, Scott, Bobby, Danny, Joe Henschel, all. And we just went for it. I want to be remembered as a pastor that goes for it. You won't remember me as a pastor of a large church. It's going to take Alex decades to edit all my studies so they make sense, if anyone ever does it. But I'll remember myself, when I look back at my life, that which I take the most joy in is that we were willing to go. And I guess that kind of goes back to being a surfer, because I was always willing to go for it. And I was willing to go for it in ministry when it seemed crazy. I was willing to go for it to plant a church in Virginia when it seemed crazy. Go for it and go to Vermont and leave a fruitful church behind. Go for it and go on south with Pastor Chuck. Get, get Thursday night hand to me. Go for it. Let Mario Polanco do a cartwheel on the stage with an electric guitar in his hand, or Giovanni Polanco. You get called in the Chuck's office. Oh, what was that? I'm like, you know, I don't know. There's a cartwheel with an electric guitar. <laughs> oh, I want, that's, if I look in the mirror, see, I'm not so much saying to you, but if I look in the mirror, because you look in the mirror, and you're not fading, but it's your final statement. I, I like the pastor who would go for it. Go for it with Team Chile, Team USA, twice. Team England, Great Britain. The movie with Hector all over Hawaii doing the crazy things we do with the movie. What do you want your identity to be when these are the last words of your life? Because what is in front of us is to be raised up. What is in front of us is to be anointed. And what is in front of us is the rest of the story. That would be the one sentence that you want your life to be defined by in your relationship with God. We can't all sing like David or Scott Cunningham. But we can all look in the mirror at a life well lived, faithfully lived to Jesus Christ. And that's what I see in this text. Oh, as a, David, what about being a king in the airport? <laughs> Forget about the king stuff. It kind of it went south. But, you know, I'm not so. It should be like this. I wasn't that. But God's gracious, and I'm under a covenant. We'll put that one under grace. Joy, what about all things you want to forget about? Yeah, just put those under grace and mercy. Like the three days with the plague. We'll just put that under grace and mercy. But this is how I want to be remembered. And I think there's a really good verse this way, because there's a lot in these two chapters that I could have taught, and I'm just so drawn to this right here for all of us. Like, what, what really do we want to define us when we're giving our last words to people we love and care about us? That's what this text challenges us to do tonight. The last words of David, the last words of you and me, and the legacy of our life to be raised up, anointed, and have the gifts God's given us to be super empowered with that anointing that we'd speak for the Spirit of the Lord and His Word would be on our tongue in Jesus' name.